and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden at the University of Johannesburg Center for African Diplomacy and Foreign Policy. Good afternoon, Kobus. Hi, how are you? Wonderful, and I'm thrilled to welcome back、uh, Lu Jinghao, who's also in Johannesburg.、Uh, and Lu Jing, for those of you who've been following our Facebook page, our blog, and our podcast, you'll know that Jinghao is a regular contributor.、Uh, Jinghao is, is, is based in South Africa. He's a blogger. He's also a Sino-Africa、uh, analyst, and really becoming one of the the great voices on the subject、uh, in lots of different forums. So, welcome and good afternoon to you,、uh, Jinghao. Good afternoon, Eric and Kobus. Well, as always, we have three topics, and it has been a really interesting week in the China-Africa space. I mean, we've had a, a little bit of a dry spell for the past few weeks, but、uh, last week really made up for it. So, first, we're going to talk about、uh, two key events in the Sino-African relationship that occurred, where、uh, in Zambia, the the Zambian government、uh, basically booted out、uh, Chinese ownership of of some key mines over safety concerns, and at the same time,、uh, Human Rights Watch came out with another report. Port blasting Chinese safety records. We'll talk about that, and then、uh, the president of, of Botswana、uh, said he's going to work hard to reduce the number of infrastructure contracts that he gives to Chinese、uh, contractors. So that was two key events that happened in that space.、Uh, Jinghao also wrote a report saying, you know, China's reputation,、uh, China's diplomacy in Africa up, reputation down. So we'll get Jinghao's take on that. Then we're going to move over to、uh, to Ghana, and this is a space where Jinghao has a lot of experience. He spent. Six months on the ground studying Chinese labor in Ghana, and we're going to talk about in the context of what's happened in Zambia. Ghana has been another flashpoint for Chinese labor problems, particularly in the mining sector and illegal gold mines. So we'll talk about that, both in terms of the perceptions and the realities. And finally, we're going to end.、Uh, we're a little bit late with this story, but we thought it was worthwhile, kind of throwing in the United States、uh, Government Accountability Office, which is an arm of Congress. Uh, issued a report、uh, comparing China and the United States investment trends in Africa. And what's so interesting about this is normally government reports don't make for very compelling reading. But we're going to kind of second Deborah Brautigam, who's the kind of preeminent professor on Sino-African relations, and she just raved about this report on her blog.、Uh, we're going to echo her sentiments that this is really worthwhile reading, and we'll tell you why coming up. Okay, gentlemen, let's get started right off the top with、uh, events in Botswana and. Zambia.、Uh, first, Kobus,、uh, let me come to you to kind of set this up before we get to Jinghao and his post、uh, that he wrote.、Um, so, tell us about the two key events. What first in Zambia and then in Botswana. So in Zambia,、um, the the government, the Zambian government,、um, announced that they are taking over the Column Coal Mine. Now, people who have been following China-Africa relations will remember the Column Coal Mine is a very、uh, controversial mine where we've seen shooting incidents, where we've seen a, a manager killed by workers,、um, and it's it's actually it's it's owned、um, in it's it's not a, a state-owned enterprise, a Chinese state-owned enterprise. It's actually privately. Owned within Zambia, but by、um, Chinese immigrants to Zambia.、Um, so the, the the government announced that they're taking it over because of safety concerns.、Um, in the case of of Botswana,、um, the president of Botswana, Ian Kama, came out and said that they are very disappointed in、um, in Chinese infrastructure provision in Botswana. Particularly,、um, they they're complaining that、um, a big new coal、um, coal powered electricity generator is behind. Behind schedule,、um, and because of that, they're going to have to ask South Africa's、um, parastatal、um, electricity provider, ESCOM, for ele- electricity provision. And、uh, anyone who knows South Africa would know that that's not a good company to ask anything of. It's a company, incredibly troubled company, even as as it is.、Um, so, uh, so, so he's been saying that they're going to be looking very hard at any kind of new Chinese contracts with Chinese companies, and that they are. Casting their net wider and trying to get other countries to participate. Okay, so Jinghao, let's now break this down into two pieces. First, we're going to start with Zambia, then we'll get to Botswana.、Um, so,、uh, the Zambian mines, the Kola mine, has been, you know, really been a, a, a black mark on China's、uh, 
kind of record in Zambia. You know, China has the reputation as being one of the worst abusers of labor in Zambia. We don't, in fact, hear that much about other foreign mines and the conditions there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the reaction and to why you think is this politics? Is this was it legitimate for the government to intervene on behalf of the workers? What was behind this decision, in your opinion? Okay, well, I think there are several issues here. The first is um, there has been a tremendous international pressure uh, to the Zambian government in terms of the Chinese mining uh related issues in the country. Um, for example, the Human Rights Watch published this huge report that has a lot of international response over uh, some of the largest Chinese mining companies like labor abuse and also environmental abuse and also uh, you know other kind of issues. This colonial mine in Zambia signifies one of the, uh, signifies this issue in, in the most because uh, for several years uh, the, the, the laborers, uh, in Zam the Zambian laborers and the Chinese laborers were having a lot of conflict that were exposed to the public. The environmental issues derived from the coal mine is also significant. And therefore, at this moment, the Zambia government to take out this license to signify that they want to do something uh, about the Chinese, um, well, at least the so-called Chinese labor abuse in Africa to kind of uh, perhaps show the international society that they want to seriously tackle this issue or to the local community that uh, they want to uh, try to be a responsible government. Okay, so Kobus, let me, uh, let me put a theory to you that, uh, and this was one of, this was a theory that I can't take credit for. It was actually shared on, on an online academic forum that you and I are a member of, so I don't remember quite who put it through, but I'll, I'll put some meat on the bones on this one. Um, the, you know, on the, on the outside, the optics of this makes it look very bad for China, that um, you know, the Zambian government's intervening, you, know, you got this Human Rights Watch report coming out at the same week saying you know, safety conditions there are terrible. Um, but there's this theory that comes and says that this is exactly what the Chinese wanted, that maybe behind the scenes the Chinese government um, was actually encouraging the Zambia to do this, in part because, as Jinghao pointed out, this is not a state-owned enterprise. This is a privately held uh, uh, enterprise, and it's been nothing but a pain in the ass for the, the Chinese diplomats and the Chinese government to have this column mine out there constantly causing problems, constantly clouding uh, China's overall reputation in Africa. You know, Zambia is a flashpoint because of Michael Sada and his reputation for, for China bashing that he did in the, camp, in the presidential campaign and in the run-up to the presidential campaign. So maybe, actually, this isn't a bad thing for China. This is a great thing for China because it finally gets this sore. Uh, you know, there's a, it's out of their way. What do you think? That makes sense to me. I think it also, it, it was probably a calculated move on the case of the case of the Zambian government because the mine is marginal. It was abandoned by its previous owners um, and it was completely waterlogged. So they had to pump out a lot of water and then to, to kind of get it back into production. So it's always been a marginal mine. It's not like one of these, uh, you know, kind of jewels in the crown of, of Zambian mining. Um, if Zambia really wanted to, to attack kind of Chinese labor, practices, they would have attacked the, the, the copper mines mentioned in the Human Rights Report, not a marginal coal mine. So, you know, kind of, I think it probably, to both sides, it, it, it sends a message that they're doing something forthright about labor abuses, while in, while in, in reality they're probably maybe not doing that much. Yeah, I mean, it's, there's, there's, the, there's the whiff of politics here, in my opinion, um, that, you know, that really captured Western headlines that fits very much into this narrative of China being a labor abuser in Africa, which... You, exactly, you know, and I mean, you know, kind of, as, as, sorry to interrupt, as, as a lot of people have pointed out, this is a Zambian company. You know, kind of, it's listed in Zambia. It's not listed in Beijing uh, or Hong Kong. And it's, you know, kind of the, 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 company, the family that started it might be ethnically Chinese, and then, but they, they immigrated to Zambia 20 years ago. You know, so to which extent is it really a Chinese company? Yeah. You know, kind of, um, yeah, I mean... Well, this again gets in, and Jinghao, I'd like your take on this. This gets into this, you know, when people say Chinese, um, that's a loaded word because most people assume that the Chinese are this mono this monolithic group and uh, and everybody implies that it's state run but in this case this was not state run uh, let me get your take um you mentioned this human rights watch report jinghao uh tell us a little did yeah. you have a chance to read the executive summary of that report and get a sense of of what they were talking about yes i did okay give us some of the highlights of that report 
Um, the Human Rights Report, um, I, I think the researchers spend a lot of time interviewing at least um, hundreds of the miners, the Zambian miners, uh, perhaps some of the Chinese uh, managers as well, generating a, a hundred pages of report in, in 2011 um, that basically said that the, the Chinese CNMC, the non-furious metal group um, mining company, uh, had a lot of labor abuse issues concerning the low wages, the a lack of protection to the laborers, and uh, the, the managers trying to threatening the labor um, organizations uh, to prevent from formation of the unions and also refuse to pay uh, the welfares that uh, in, uh, necessary for supporting the laborers and their families. So anyway, has portrayed this Chinese company into this uh, hum huge uh, labor abusive company um, in Zambia, and therefore having some kind of uh, a conclusion that uh, the, uh, the Chinese uh, mining in Zambia, at least in Zambia, is, is, is not good for Zambian people. Therefore, people who invest in CNMC, which were to be um, listed in China, should be cautious to invest in such company with such a labor abusive uh, a record. So, which this report has has generated a lot of response in the in the West, at least in the Western society. Yeah. Basically, a fed into the Western government um, type of um, uh, uh, kind of plan. Uh, I don't know if it's plan or kind of a, a, a line. At least align themselves with the Western press that Chinese are doing very bad work and they support it with enough data to make believe, people believe that this is actually the case. And then uh, the academic world of this, uh, the academia world has a very different response. Basically, sure. after some other re scholaric research in Zambia as well as in other African countries, people started doubting whether or not uh, this research is, is um, at least uh, a, a little bit impartial because it failed to assess other foreign companies in Zambia which were uh, supposedly equally uh, abusive to the laborers and also some of the methods Chinese use in, in, in abusing the labor, so, so uh, quote-unquote abusing the labor, are, are the methods generally used by foreign companies. So Failure, failure to assessing other foreign companies in comparison to the Chinese companies in Zambia has uh, put a big question mark in the in the in the uh, uh, impartialness of this report. Yeah. So, but I think the but I think the the academia world's voice is still too weak in front of the media press that generally likes to hear um, certain kind of uh, story in China Africa relations. That's right. So the Western media coverage from the BBC to France 24 to pretty much you know across the line was to take the Human Rights Watch report a face value. And if you look, uh, do a Google search on this topic, and you'll see basically the, the headline is all uh, you know 100% credit to to Human Rights Watch, Human Rights Watch report. It's really one of my big criticisms. I've been in, in journalism now for 20 plus years, and in most newsrooms, uh, these types of NGOs do not get treated as independent actors. They get treated as kind of objective sources, uh, almost the, an extension of, of journalism. And it's really rather unfortunate because COBUS, um, as we're going to talk about, uh, the methodological approach that Human Rights Watch took in the 2011 report was criticized by academics who are specialists in this field. That was not brought up in the media coverage. Now, in this report, uh, this is the third report that they've come out on this particular issue, um, you know, a number of different academics, both Western and Chinese, have, you know, harshly criticized uh, Human Rights Watch. Let me quote you from Barry Saltman, and he, that may be familiar to you. He is a, a very well-known professor on Sino-African relations at the University of Science and Technology in Hong Kong, and also uh, his colleague Yen Hairung uh, at the, University, the Polytechnic University in Hong Kong, they issued a statement afterwards uh, that said, and I'm going to quote here, and in Copus, I want you to kind of give me your feedback. Rather than conduct a genuine comparative study, uh, Human Rights Watch sees what it wants to see and thus again fosters the entirely predictable result of feeding anti-Chinese sentiment in Zambia with its history of anti-Chinese incitement by the now ruling Patriotic Front in Africa generally and internationally. So those are very, very harsh words for, inter for Human Rights Watch. From the, from the approach that Human Rights Watch took, what precisely is uh, Professor Soutman and Professor Yen talking about? 
I, I would tend to be to, to be a little bit softer towards Human Rights Watch in this case. I mean, they they looked at at a, a limited case, um, and they looked at um, you know at, at four um, four um, state-owned you know smelters and miners, um, all related to the China Non-Ferrous Metals Corporation, the state-owned um, you know corporation. Um, and they um, so, so they set certain criteria, and then they went back now um, and, and looked how how these criteria have changed, and they found that there were actually some significant improvements. So um, you know, kind of compared to um, Saltman and company, um, Deborah Broutingham on her blog was for saying was was reading this report as actually saying like, well, you know, kind of mining in Zambia might have, might actually be improving. There's you know, kind of there's indications that the work the work hours are more human, that there's more access to unions on, on the mining sites, there's better freedom of association. And then at the same time there's a lot of health and safety and environmental issues. Um, that is still going on, for which Human Rights Watch then mostly blames the Zambian government. Um, so I'm not sure whether I really completely agree with Saltman and company on this case. Uh, you know, kind of the Zambian government comes in for a lot of stick in this report. Yeah, but you know what was interesting was halfway through the report, you start hearing all these positive things that the that CMC, CNMC has done. And I just kept thinking to myself, wow, they led with the, this very stinging kind of negative headline. But yet it's really mixed findings. So on the one hand, and they haven't improved enough, but on the other hand, they've done a lot of things that are that are better. So it was a little bit misleading. Uh, let me just wrap up on Saltman, and then we're going to get Jing Hao's kind of final comments on this. Uh, our, here's a quote again, uh, and this is something that Jing Hao brought up: that you know the Chinese, and particularly this mine, um, were not among the worst violators of, of labor rights. Uh, certainly, both Zambian mines and other foreign mines have a much worse record. Uh, and they write, and I'm quoting here. Our findings show that all foreign-owned mining houses are exploiters of Zambian workers and Zambian resources. But CNMC is neither the worst abuser nor the super exploiter. So I thought that was very interesting. And what, yeah. I guess their main criticism was they did not put CNMC and the Chinese mines in a context of the broader foreign mining environment in Zambia. And that's, I think, yes. uh, Jinghao, what you were talking about. I totally agree. I think Chinese entrance to Africa is definitely in the last perhaps 20 years or maybe just 10 years. So if the Zambian law is not there to enforce the labor rights, which is apparently the case, therefore uh, the foreign companies, like these largest mining companies in the world, listed in London, in Toronto, or in uh, uh, Sydney, has been doing this, such things, uh, such labor practice for a long time. If that's the case, why is the media just the Put, pick, put, uh, putting up something that is generated five years ago to kind of accuse this is uh, something that only Chinese is doing and it's a very recent thing. I think the media has been at least misleading me into that direction. Well, I can tell you why the media is doing it, but because the media, the people who make the editorial decisions at most of these international newsrooms, and I speak from first-hand experience here, um, don't know the story. And so what they do is they see a, a press release come out from Human Rights Watch and they print it. And so, so the the just to give people a, a point of view, Zambia safety gaps threaten copper miners. You can find that on the Human Rights Watch uh, website at hrw.org. We'd like you to make up your own mind. Uh, tell us what you think about uh, about this particular topic. Do you think Human Rights Watch and the, the quality of the research stands up? Uh, or do you agree with Professors Barry Saltman and Yen Hai-Rong uh, and me, maybe not uh, Kobus, uh, and think that uh, they're, they're not really... or. In, and what Jinghao was saying, not kind of putting this in the proper context. So um, also just want to make one very minor clarification here. China non-ferrous metal mining company, CNMC, is a state-owned company. The Colum mine, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Kobus, is a, is not a state-owned company. It's a private company. So no, it's right. a private company. Yeah, didn't want to and get the, those the, two. The, two are, the, the two are not related. The two are not related. So we just we, we kind of squished them together in that discussion. Okay. And so, I think, you know, kind of that's one of, that's one of the dangers actually in the bigger Human Rights Watch reporting is these these cases tend to be squished together. Not only you know kind of in our conversation sometimes, but you know kind of uh, I've seen a lot of reporting this week, you know taking the Human Rights Watch report as a reason for why the, the Zambian government kind of cracked down on Colum, and the two have nothing to do with each other. Yeah. Like Human Rights Watch don't mention Colum at all, and Colum isn't even a copper mine. So you know kind of so I think I think that that happens in the general China Africa reporting space. 
lot. And that certainly happened last week. So people did talk about Column and then mention the Human Rights Watch report. So this kind of shows the complexity of this type of story and, and that it does require people on the ground who know the subtleties of the story. So let's now move over to Botswana, which was the other major story of the week. Uh, President Ian Kana, uh, Kama, excuse me, he, uh, he came out and said that he wants fewer Chinese contractors working on projects. Um, now, this has come as something of a, of a surprise because you don't really see heads of state so publicly coming out to criticize the Chinese and the quality of their work. Now, behind the scenes, and this is a topic on our show that we've talked about for years now, there's been complaints of poor quality roads, poor quality hospitals. We talked about in Angola how the hospitals are crumbling before people have even moved into them. Um, we had uh, Cabuena, one of our contributors and guests from, uh, from Ghana, talking about how the roads you know, collapsed within six months of building. We've talked about, you know, there's been one example after another of, of crappy Chinese quality in the infrastructure. Now, that said, the Chinese will tell you that each project is different, each project is funded differently, and each project has its own political context. So and this is something that I talked about in, in, uh, in the Congo, where the infrastructure projects were very closely tied to the presidential election campaign of Joseph Kabila, and they were to meet the deadline for the campaign. And so the Chinese contractors were working under, you know, large Large external forces here. So uh, let's go to to Jinghao and get your your take on 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 this and what it what it kind of st- and represents in terms of the per- perception of the Chinese in Africa. And does it actually matter that Botswana, this tiny little country that is, of course, you know, not one of the wealthiest countries in Africa, has a very very high HIV/AIDS rate? What does it mean that President Kama came out and said this? Well, I would argue that the importance of Botswana to China is very, uh, I mean, at least not as important. Uh, although the country doesn't have much of, um, res- I mean, resources, uh, perhaps the money to funding things, um, China and the Botswana government has been doing uh, a lot of deals in terms of uh, founding the infrastructure development of Botswana for a long time, taking the company as chi- uh, such as China State en- uh, Engineering Construction Company, which we know as CSCC, the uh, world's largest construction company, uh, the, the single largest construction company, they have been operating Botswana since 1988. And they chose Botswana, not South Africa, as the center for their um, Southern Africa business uh, business line. So that signifies Botswana's importance uh, to China as, as an important partner. So the President Kama's uh, response towards this uh, molecule project, project is very it's going to be very damaged to Chinese uh, business in s- Southern Africa because not just the CSEC, but a lot of other companies are involving the development of Botswana's infrastructure. If the president take, decides to take that way, uh, I think uh, all these companies would have struggled to find business here. But COVID- yeah, and if I can jump in there, sorry. Another reason why this is important is that Botswana has a reputation for being one of the best-run countries in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, you know, kind of, it, it has one of the lowest rates of, of, of corruption on, on the international corruption indices. It's generally seen as super efficient and very well-run. And Ian Karma tends to also be seen as very business-like, very hard-nosed, very, very kind of, you know, clean. Um, so I think... I think criticism from Botswana counts for more in in the African space than criticism from many other African countries. You know, kind of because because the, the government in, in Botswana is frequently seen as above reproach generally. Okay, so so when I read the article and it was available on BD Live, which is South Africa at bdlive.co.za, we put that up on our Facebook page. So if you go to facebook.com slash China Africa Project, you can find it there. So he doesn't want to use Chinese, and he wants to. She doesn't want to ban the Chinese. He wants to reduce the amount of Chinese contracts uh, made available. So my question is, who else, okay, is going to come in at the prices that the Chinese are offering and do it? It's not going to be the Americans. It won't be the French. It won't be the Germans. Who it might be the Indians, but I don't know if you'll get better quality with the Indians. And I don't want to sound here like I'm defending the Chinese, which I'm not. I'm just thinking out loud about. Who else is going to provide that large a contract at those subsidized prices that, you know, not many other countries are equipped to do? 
Well, you know, kind of what, what we might see is you might see Brazil coming up. Um, you might also see co-productions or like, you know, kind of, um, you know, Western, non-Western kind of, um, you know, uh, collaborations. Um, as, as we've seen in, you know, in the case of, of uh, rail projects in, in Malawi going through to Mozambique. Um, you know, because, because this isn't just a power plant. Um, Botswana actually has quite a lot of coal. Um, and this, this, you know, kind of development includes rail projects to take the coal to this power plant. So it's potentially a very big contract. Um, and, you know, kind of it, it, Botswana also is interesting in the sense that Botswana has a lot of diamonds. Um, and Botswana is the only country in the world who managed to strike a deal with De Beers to have some of their diamond processing done in Botswana and to not just have raw diamonds exported to Belgium and Holland to, have, to be processed. Um, so Botswana has a certain amount of clout. Um, and it, it might be, you you know, kind of, it, it might be the first stirrings of uh, a more kind of canny, more hard-nosed deal-making culture coming out of that part of Africa, maybe. Which is something that we've been talking about and is so important that African leaders begin to stand up to China and begin to strike better deals. So this might be the first, uh, you know, we've seen Paul Kagame, uh, certainly, Celeste Manawi, before he passed away, was doing, you know, tougher deals. So in Ghana as well. Uh, but, you know, there's a growing sense in, in you know, Jinghao that... People are just getting fed up with, you know, low-quality Chinese imports and Chinese products. Um, I see this, you know, in, in two different ways. On, on one side, you know, the crappy imitation cell phone, the, imi- the, the, the counterfeit malaria drugs, the, the poor-quality infrastructure are very tangible to people so they can get very frustrated. The other side of it is that Huawei network that's built that allows people to connect to the Internet. They don't see that. So it's great quality from Huawei, but it's invisible. So the the easy targets are there, but this really feeds into another negative perception and another narrative we've talked about. So we had one narrative in Zambia. Another narrative here is is low-quality Chinese products in manufacturing and infrastructure. What's your thought on that? Yes, I think um, th- there there is um, a large group of Chinese as well as um, South uh, African traders that prefers to import the goods that are cheap and low quality, but at least they can afford it. So you cannot entirely blaming on the manufacturing side in China because they they were commissioned to do this work. But the traders, both Chinese and Africans, they brought these goods uh, to Africa and they see the markets there. Now seeing the markets over there, I also think uh, the Chinese merchants are, are a bit too sophisticated after 30 years of competing the very very um, fierce market in China so they are very used to deal with these issues such as counterfeit or such as um, uh, you know taking the money and just running away so they know how to protect it they see Africans are not as sophisticated so uh, therefore we see that some of the Africans are uh, traders are taken advantage of in terms of the online uh, business trading as well as the in, in person and kind of trading, um, and I think it's also generally a lack of protection uh, the South the African traders uh, seek in order to uh, in order to secure their money. So if you go to a bank, you get some uh, bank to do the guarantee. You'll be able to get get your your goods in a good quality where you you don't have enough money to do that. Now the other side of the story is the government. How the government in Africa enforces uh, uh, the trade in a ethical uh, value. In a lot of countries, you have um, traders, organizations, or uh, chamber of commerce who can kind of protect your uh, interest. Even in China, the Nigerian community has an uh, association of Nigerians to protect the interests of generally all African traders. So if African governments didn't put together a scheme and to enforce it to ensure that the Chinese um, traders not bringing uh, the counterfeited goods and not uh, smuggling the illegal goods or not um, uh, bringing goods without paying tax, and the Chinese will continue doing it. It's just a trade trend that the Chinese merchants are too sophisticated and too risk-taking and money-driven. And I believe that the, the government needs to, to understand how they operate and also put together something that can actually be helpful to, uh, to stop that. Okay. So I'm not totally supportive to the Chinese ethics. 
politics. I think it damages the reputation for Chinese professionals like me in Africa. But uh, I think the I think both the civil society and the government needs to take on that uh, role to to stop that. Yeah, but you say that, and, and let me challenge you here a little bit. I mean, you say that the government sure. should take a, a stronger role. Let's let's move to where you spent some time in Ghana. Um, you know, Kobus and I about two maybe three months ago really talked a lot about uh, the question of illegal Chinese gold mines. Now it's illegal both to mine in Ghana, and then on top of it, it's illegal. Most of those people are there illegally. They don't have a visa to be there. So everybody said, why does the government allow these Chinese miners to, to be there and to do this? It's because the government's too weak to enforce its own you know, mining laws and its own immigration laws. So to say that you know, the government should do it, but most African governments simply don't have the resources to enforce these laws, and you get the perception that Chinese immigrants are taking advantage of this situation to their own benefit. I would I would say that the the law is there for Chinese to take advantage of, uh, unfortunately, and because uh, in countries like Ghana there is a very kind of divergent uh, a political system that allowing chief to still hold the title of the land, the government is only doing the role as a coordinator, and therefore if the Chinese just take out of take the flight, go to Ghana, and get a visa, a tourist visa, and then drive directly to the hinterland for uh, uh, one day or two, and talk to the chief directly. The chiefs in Ghana, in Ashanti land, will protect them. In order, uh, to get, in, in, in order to benefit from them, the chief will get perhaps one gram out of 100 grams out of the land, but they don't really have uh, much of the interest of protecting their people in the next 100 years, and therefore you see like a collusion of this uh, power that allows that happen. The government can simply not doing enough to enforce it. And also, we're talking about the government officials have the kind of too weak in front of the, the bribes coming from the Chinese. So uh, it's, it is a challenge. I agree with you that neither Chinese government nor Ghanaian government can do enough in order to stop it. They did some of the raiding into these mines and some also resulted in killing of people. But the, that doesn't solve the problem that not only that, that caused a lot of animosity from the Chinese online uh, internet communities over uh, how the Ghanaians are killing Chinese and somehow becomes a diplomatic issue. Yeah, but you, that to me, you know, the online Chinese, you know, social network community, you know, they become extremely nationalistic very quickly. We had a translation uh, not that long ago that Tendai Musakwa did about how the Chinese should send military forces to, to Sudan and how, you know, and there's this kind of FU attitude on the part of the Chinese social networks that comes up very, very quickly. Most of these people on the Chinese social networks don't even the first clue where Africa is, much less that, you know, this, uh, the subtleties of any of these issues. I mean, I, I get the sense, and I, and I I believe that most, you know, the, the, the frustration in Ghana over the, the question of illegal mines and the question of illegal markets and illegal merchants is justified. Kobus, you know, there's a rising sense of frustration about the fact, and across the continent, about how the fact that they feel like the Chinese are getting away with something. And, and that, that this is not right, what's going on. And so, you know, to kind of pick up on, on Jing Hao's, you know, kind of that there's been a lot of misunderstandings, but it's partially the, the local government's job to enforce it. But when they don't do it, the people get frustrated. So, yeah, Aaron, well, no, Kobus, do you have any idea on how to perhaps stop uh, the, the Chinese uh, to do illegal business in Africa? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the big question. I think, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, kind of you, you end up sounding a little bit like the UN's, you know, kind of Millennium Development Goals. It's like, yes, we would like fresh water for everyone. You know, that kind of situation, you know, kind of we would like less corruption. We would like bribes to play less of a role. We would like better governance, you know, and so on. And in that sense, one does also end up sounding a lot like the American government, you know, kind of saying that governance ends up being the basis that we need to, to focus on rather than what the Chinese government says is that business will eventually lead to better governance. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, it becomes one of these existential issues uh, that, that, re that relates to the entire role that Africa plays in the world. Um, and I think, I think they, uh, I mean, you know, kind of that's my long-winded answer to say I don't really know what 
yeah. to do. Well, I don't think there is a clear-cut answer, but I, I, I tell you, though, that the Chinese had, you know, they'd better get better at their PR game because right now they need it. Um, you know, one topic that we haven't talked about this past week is, uh, which came up quite a bit, is this poaching issue. And, uh, you know, and this is another one that really captivates people's attention, uh, much like the mines in Ghana, but in the West, you know, killing Dumbo is not a good idea. Um, and so the negative narrative, you know, is, is really getting hold around this issue of the ivory um, in, in China. So the Chinese, I, I think, have to do a better job at PR. We've, we've lamented the, the inability of the Chinese to really grasp how to do effective PR, but uh, that seems to be, uh, to be one point. We're going on very long, and I still want to get to the, to the USGAO report. Jinghao, I'm going to give you the final comment on Ghana and this kind of, we talked about, you know, this question of narratives. What do you think needs to be done to, to solve this and to kind of make sure that, you know, I worry that this gets out of control. I worry that the frustration level from people across the continent, uh, you know, from Cairo to Cape Town gets really just too high and they're just fed up with dealing with the Chinese. Do you think that's a, a reasonable concern? I'm sorry, Corpus. Do you mind repeating the question because the signal is it's not very good here. Do you think that uh, my, my concern is the fact that there is going that, that the frustration among the people is just going to become so high that people are going to just get so fed up with the Chinese over these issues of, of illegal mining, of labor, of gold mining, of merchants, of poaching, you know, all of these things that at some point people just say, forget it, we're, we're done dealing with the Chinese. Well, I think there will be more uh, anti-Chinese sentiment from the grassroots because they simply see the pictures as um, these pieces such as uh, labor abuse or uh, illegal Chinese immigration or, uh, you know, um, um, Chinese um, bad practice in business. That The grassroots will, I believe, have more and more anti-Chinese sentiment and that will disturb some of the Chinese business in Africa. You might see um, uh, the Ch- African people came to broke into the uh, break the Chinese shops or uh, there will be more push for the African government to stop Chinese business. But uh, my take of this is that because a lot of African and Chinese collaboration is in the state-to-state level, 80% of the Chinese investment into Africa are done by the Chinese government to uh, kind of talk with the African government. And therefore, uh, despite the, gov- the grassroots um, uh, dis- discontent with the Chinese, the China will still successfully um, negotiate more deals with the African government, and the government will see that uh, the benefits of dealing with the Chinese. And or maybe there's not other alternatives, and therefore they will still continue to deal with the Chinese. And uh, besides that, I think more and more Chinese uh, state-owned enterprises, as well as the Chinese government officials, have seen the issues of uh, uh, unaware of the labor laws or uh, all these tensions in the la- in the local markets. So. It's not hard to to predict that the government in China will, in fact, push more and more um, state-owned enterprises to practice more responsibly in Africa in terms of their corporate social responsibility strategy, as well as some perhaps some training in uh, training fundings in different SOEs in order to make the Chinese more aware of African culture. Uh, in fact, I see more uh, Chinese companies are learning about African culture. They are aware of that. So there is different sides of uh, the issue created by the irresponsible Chinese entrepreneurs and traders, as well as there's improvement of the Chinese labor conduct and business conduct from the state-owned, as well as some largest uh, listed private companies in in Africa. So we will see like how these two kind of forces will balance. But I certainly uh, disagree that the Western press uh, put these two groups into one issue and start just using one example and generate mm-hmm. the whole situation. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you. And I think uh, corporate social responsibility is going to be a topic that we address on a future show. Um, and so uh, let's quickly move to our third topic because we're running out of time. Uh, th- I don't usually recommend uh, government reports as interesting reading because they're usually not. They're deathly boring and, 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 and not even that interesting uh, and, and oftentimes not even that well written. Uh, but the United States Government Accountability Office, and if you're not familiar with the GAO, it's an independent research arm of Congress.
Congress. So it's nonpartisan, doesn't work for the Republicans or the Democrats, and it's basically a big, giant research. And Congress says, we want to find out about X. And the GAO goes out there and does research and comes back with what they claim is a nonpartisan report. And, and they have a really great reputation in the United States, and I think that's worth mentioning. Well, in February of 2013, they came out with a report called Trends in U.S. and Chinese Economic Engagement in Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, the first that I got word of this was on Deborah Browdigam's blog, where she really, really praised it. And so that got me interested, and, and it, it makes for excellent, excellent reading. Uh, it's easy easily out there. Just do a search for it. I want to bring your attention to page 26, uh, 25 and 26. And this is where the charts start coming up. Uh, in Cobus, what, what kind of struck me was when they started comparing U.S. Uh, sources of imports and U.S. kind of target countries for exports and what the U.S. and China are exporting and importing and what they uh, and where it's going to, What's amazing is that they're, they're almost in parallel with one another. Although the volumes of Chinese uh, exports and imports have gone up and they're pulling away now from, from the Americans, up until really this year and last year, they were neck and neck. And usually, it, you look at it, it's oil. Uh, but yet, and this goes to Jing Hao's point about the negative narrative, uh, the volume of trade has been very similar. The, the types of things that they're exporting from Africa, oil, natural resources, is almost identical. Uh, but yet, you know, we don't see that discussion of, 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 of American negative perception in Africa. Um, so what was, your, what, was your, what, what was your take on that? Yeah, this this really it was it was striking. You know, kind of the the patterns are almost identical. They tend to be exporting mostly oil, both to China and to, to America. And what was interesting for me is, you know, you, so frequently I, I you know I, I've become sensitized to the way that China is described in the Western press. And you know, kind of it's interesting once you start looking at look how often China is described as insatiable, like China's insatiable need for oil, and then you realize. Oh, America's actually importing more oil than China. And, you know, kind of America is almost never described in the Western press as an insatiable, an you know, having word. an insatiable need for oil. Um, you know, kind of it's, it's, there is this kind of like monsterization of China um, in, in the discourse. And then once you, once you actually look at, the, at the, the, the actual numbers, which this report is great with, because frequently these reports tend to not give lots of hard numbers. This one is very exact and it gives lots and lots of figures. Um, and then you realize, oh, no, actually they, you know, kind of they, 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 they actually are export very much the same things, um, and the trade balance between Africa and China is actually much more balanced and than healthier. between America and China. And that was something yeah, that much I thought. Healthier. That's what I thought. And this goes to to Jacob Zuma's point, your 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 president, who said that the uh, you know the, the the nature of the trade imbalance between Africa and China is not sustainable. And I kept thinking about that as I was reading this report because what's not sustainable is the trade imbalances between the United States and Africa. And in the long run, because China is diversifying its imports and diversifying its exports to, to, to Africa, much more so than, than the United States is based on the data that we see in this report. So I, I, I was getting really, really frustrated about the hypocrisy that we see in the coverage, as you pointed out. And then this week as well, just to kind of you know, bring this up, the United States um, assigned a status of forces agreement with Niger. Um, and they're going to be oper- sending a, a hundred U.S. soldiers. Uh, soldiers to Niger to operate a drone base. And you imagine if, if China, you know, if we're trying to kind of look at apples to apples here, you know, wanted to set up a drone base to monitor its interests in Africa, what kind of outrage there would be. So I just don't see an equal treatment on the part of both the media and Africans towards the United States and, and China. That just, I, and maybe, maybe they don't deserve one. Kobus, what's your thought on that? Yeah, I think maybe it might be this thing of that that people are just so used to American power, you know, kind of, and, and China, Chinese international power is somehow seen as new. Well, you know, kind of, it's this new arrival on the stage. Well, American power, there is this, a little bit of this, you know, kind of frog in boiling water situation where people are just used to American, uh, the American military being, you know, very well represented everywhere, um, and you know, just that they're just it's just more part of the kind of mental landscape, I think, for people. 
people uh, the world over, including within America. I think. Jing Hao, you know, this comes back to perceptions. Uh, you know, the, right. the, the the news theme in the United States this past week has all been about Chinese hackers and and, and the Chinese PLA uh, hacking into the New York Times, the Washington Post. I mean, that's a very strong narrative. We've talked about the narrative. I'm aware in, of it. Yeah, and we've talked about the narrative in Ghana. We've talked about the narrative in Zambia. And, and yet the, this GAO report, you know, really flies in the face of the narrative. Uh, but what, what do you think... I don't even know what the question to ask is, but I'm just, I guess I'm frustrated by the hypocrisy that I see around. <laughs> what do I think? What? Yeah, what do you think of this situation? I mean, it's a, I don't really have a question because I'm just so frustrated by the hypocrisy <laughs> that, that, that the United States gets a pass, that the United States, you know, has conducts, you know, and I'm not anti-American, so please don't start emailing me about being anti-American, but I am frustrated that, that people do not hold the same standards. When you look at the data, and the data says that the United States is just as energy insatiable, as Cobus pointed out, than, than, than China is. They have huge demands for natural resources, but yet people don't criticize the Americans of being neocolonialists. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's very interesting that recently I read some um, report in the Chinese media that uh, the U.S. has been uh, export uh, the trash into China. Um, and these Chinese uh, southern provinces have been taking these trash uh, to dispose these trash in China, has caused, uh, which has caused a significant uh, level of the environmental damage. And there's no media in the, in the West who have talked about these kind of things. And when we're looking at the opening of a, a newspaper such as the New York Times, the Washington Post. As long as you're looking at, at the Chinese news, um, if you follow for a whole year, there's almost no discussion of the positive news around China. It's always about the leadership um, kind of uh, being corrupt or uh, certain issues in environment or certain issues with um, the Chinese powers. And I think it has been the case because the whole world is, is looking, is watching Chinese growth. And because China's system is so different from the rest of the world, it's still communism, although it's communism, most people don't realize there's democracy inside the governmental decision. Yeah, there's a lot right. of concern about st stability more than the, the certain things like the human rights. Uh, the Chinese still think that if its economy collapses, it will contribute, it will uh, cause like the, the global kind of crisis. So it wants to keep its um, growth at the cost of certain kind of uh, human rights or, or such things that I think the Chinese people are not as concerns the West, but that has caused such a clash into the system because the, the world wants to see China play a role as, as the, the rest of the players because uh, the post-World War II, the whole world has been constricted in that system and putting uh, organizations such as the United Nations, World Bank, and IMF in, into the place to facilitate that system. All the uh, non-governmental organizations coordinate with these global organizations to make these processes. And then suddenly China jumped out and said, we don't care about uh, the issues in Zimbabwe. We deal with um, uh, Bashir in, in Sudan as if he, uh, no, it's, it's all, only about business and then people got freaked out. Well, and then uh, just coupled with all these issues uh, regarding the Chinese military power in the, in the South China Sea, the Tibetan issue, the Taiwan issue, and then people just like uh, tend to, to perceive China as this kind of devil power. Uh, well, you, you cannot totally hate it because it contributes so much of the family saving in the United States and the rest of the world, and also uh, the Chinese business uh, investment all over the world has saved countries in the European unions uh, in terms of buying their goods, or they came to Africa because of the Chinese needs for natural resources. It pulled Africa out of the econ global economic crisis much faster than it should be. So you, you have to love it, and then you hate it. And because it's kind of, uh, I think there is a, a discrepancy or there's a kind of imbalancing opinions, um, the media uh, kind of feel always doubtful when hearing positive news in China, where always feel comfortable when uh, there's some news that feed into their perception in China. So we'll be it will be very interesting to see what China will slowly build its global image through the launching of the state media and perhaps more diplomat, uh, citizen diplomacies to convince people that China is not as uh, insatiable or China is not a devil power that only wants to disturb the global order after World War yeah. II. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll agree with you on, on the main point, which is that, you know, I wake up on a Monday and I just think China's doing, you know, wonderful things and then I wake 
wake up on a Tuesday and I think, you know, the, you know, China's the biggest asshole country you've seen. And then I wake up on a Wednesday and it's like, well, it's not so bad. I mean, it changes that quickly. As you said, there's both good and bad, you know, very clear. Um, I, I'm not going to go quite as far as you in, in calling, you know, talking about democracy in China, which is, of course, at the village level and at the very, very local level. But there is a very, I mean, there's a very strong authoritarian strain that, that's there. And that's that's not even debatable. I mean, you know, China's human rights questions are, are, are well documented. Um, but my, you know, I, Kobus, we're going to end the, this podcast on the same thing we've talked about over and over and over again, which is if China wants to improve its perception, it's going to have to do a better job in the media and telling its own story. And right now, in my opinion, it sucks at it. It's terrible at it. <laughs> you know, and it's got to do a better yeah. job. Yeah, I think on, I think I would add to that saying that Africa probably needs to do a better job as well. Yeah, um, not only in, not only in managing you know kind of its resources, but in starting in trying to expand its role in the world. Um, one of the things that I found very interesting um, in in this report is just this, it's this very stark kind of um, making clear of what Africa has to offer, yeah. you know, kind of to the world market. Um, and what Africa has to offer is oil, you know. Um, and that that just became so clear. It's like we can talk as much as we want about beneficiation of, of resources. We can talk as much of, about, you know, making shoes in Ethiopia and making wine in South Africa and, and all of this. But what in the end, these, these numbers are clear. Like what people are getting from Africa are a little bit of minerals and a lot of oil, and you know, kind of. And I think if if Africa doesn't get clear in its own mind about how this works and how it fits into the the world economy, it's not going to be able to change that role. And it has to change that role because you know there's only so much oil in Africa. You know, kind of. You they're finding new new deposits, but all all deposits are finite. So Africa has to you know they have to make hay while the sun shines. You know, and they have to try and get something done while this resource boom is going on and while China is is still you know in the mood to import. Yeah. Um, because who knows what's going on in the future. Well, listen, I think that's a, a great point to end on, which is at the end of the day, it comes down to oil. And this GAO report really highlights that. Uh, go look it up. It's on, You can find a link to it on Deborah Braudigam's blog. You can find a link to it on our website, our brand new website, which you should check out, ChinaAfricaProject.com. It's got some fantastic translations of Chinese social media by Tendai Musakwa, who's doing his PhD at Fudan University in Shanghai. I've got some of my own writings on there. I think one or two pieces from Cobus are up there. Uh, it's also got links to all of the China Africa Project, various social media uh, links, so you can get our, 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 our iPhone app, our, our Google, uh, you can find us in the Google Play Store, you can find links to our, our, our Twitter feeds, Facebook, uh, and then, of course, how to listen to this podcast. We're on iTunes, we're on Stitcher, we're on SoundCloud, so all of those links are in one place at, uh, at, at the ChinaAfricaProject.com and, of course, if you want want to find out what we're doing and Cobus is posting up a storm right now which is just fantastic on our Facebook page we're almost 40,000 strong I mean that's incredible Jing is also a regular participant in this uh, you can find us at facebook.com slash China Africa project there are some fantastic conversations going on over there okay let's wrap it up Co- uh, Jing Hao every time before we leave we kind of get uh, you know people want to follow you want to stay on top of what you're doing what's the best way that people can find you online um, I maintain a blog called Chinese in Africa, and the blog link is China slash dash Africa dash dot blogspot dot com. And I'm often uh, writing news pieces and uh, contributing to the Facebook discussion, so it won't be hard to find me at all. He, and the blog is fantastic. I cannot say enough about it. Uh, there's uh, he, he's posting, I'd say once or twice, uh, you know, every month, uh, once a week or so. So it's it's excellent. And of course, Cobus, uh, if people want to find you, where can they? Find find you. Um, I'm yes, I'm, I'm active on our Facebook page, and it's been very fun to kind of speak with people there. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S T A D N E S Q U E. And you can find me on Twitter at E O Lander. That's E O L A N D E R. Uh, my my Twitter feed also shows up on the uh, the China Africa Project website. Uh, we're back every Sunday. We do this show every week, in, and we basically bring up the top topics of the uh, of the week in China. 
China-Africa relations. If there's something that you would like us to talk about, or if you're working on a paper for school uh, that you'd like us to kind of feature and you'd like to come on the show, uh, find us on Facebook. We have had so many different guests find us on, on Facebook, and we've brought them on the show. So we'd love to hear from you. This is really a show for you. So, uh, so definitely drop us a note, and we'll get back to you. But until next Sunday, thank you so much for listening to the China in Africa podcast. We'll talk to you then. Thank you.